Uh, it's good to see everybody today, and uh, if, if you've been with us, you've been walking through this series that we've been doing for the last six uh, weeks. If you're new here, uh, we've, been, we've been preaching about, talking about the glory of God. Specifically, how do we as believers live in all the different aspects of our lives in a manner that glorifies Him? As we work, as we play, as we engage in marriage and in parenting, as we deal with finances, as we think. And and everything we do, Paul said, even when you're eating or drinking, it's all to be done to his glory. So what does that look like? And and this morning we're going to look at working to the glory of God. Now I had told you a couple weeks ago that I was only given sermons that were in my wheelhouse. And I had said that I was not given working to the glory of God because I didn't have a full-time job. Well, Chris was supposed to preach this sermon, ironically, or fittingly, maybe. Uh, He's not going to be able to preach this sermon because he's on the job training right now in Colorado. I was free, so I said, (laughs) I'll step in and do that. So do as I say, not as I do this morning, my young flock. Um, We talk about working. You know, you think about our our weekly, um, the amount of time that we spend working a week. Now, you look at this chart. This is the average time average work day for employed persons ages 25 to 54 with children. This is how we spend our day. Now, you might look over at that red slice and say, hey, you lied to us two weeks ago. You said that we work, we we have leisure and sports five hours a day. Well, this is a different demographic, okay? This is work days, not every day. This is employed people, and it's different age groups, and it's with children. So I wasn't lying to you Um, at all. But you look at this, what's the biggest part of this pie? It's the green slice at the bottom. It's our work. We work the the largest slice of our day, larger than any other slice, even sleep, on average, is spent working. We work in America an average of 8.8 hours a day. And if you calculate that over time, That means that if we are to work for 40 hours a week over the span of 40 years, okay, which is roughly the time that an American will work, that means that at the end of your lifetime, you'll look back and you will have worked 80,000 hours. It's a lot of time spent on something, on anything. And that's not even including the 15,000 hours that you spend on top of that, primarily preparing in kindergarten through college for that job that you're going to go into. We in America, we are work crazed. Um, If you look at, since 1960, the average American worker productivity has risen 400%. We work 400% more than we did 50 years ago. And and, and then 86% of males and 60% of females work more than 40 hours a week. We are a workaholic society, especially when you compare us to the rest of the world. We work uh, 137, and each individual works an average of 137 more hours per year than the Japanese. 260 more hours a year than the British, and 499 more hours than those lazy French. 134 countries in the world have laws for the maximum length that a person's allowed to work in a week. That's the majority of the countries in our world say, listen, you're not allowed, we, we, don't, we don't believe that you should work more than this amount every week. We, we don't have that in America. You're allowed to work as much as you want. And then, so not only do we work a lot, according to a recent poll, 70% of Americans don't like their job. Okay, so the giggles tell me a lot here, okay. 
And 20%, one out of five, says they flat out hate their job. So not only do we work a lot, we hate it. So 80,000 hours of misery. Lee Hardy, a writer who was writing on this topic of work, he said this, the vast majority of Americans loathe their daily occupations, or at least they find them exceedingly tedious. He went on to say, and moreover, if the boredom and banality of the weekday routine were not compensated by a little excitement on the weekend, most employees would find their work completely unbearable. They work because they have to. It's a financial necessity. What a bleak picture. Now, there are, that's, I mean, that is not across the board. There are some of, of us in this room that love our job, that love going to work day after day. But on the whole, this is the projection that America has of work, that we're obsessed with it, that we never stop doing it, but we don't actually like it. And so the question is, is my, can my job, can my vocation be part of God's plan in glorifying himself? Now, we're not just talking about, well, when you're at work, you need to witness. Or when you're working, you need to take 10% of that and give it to us on Sunday mornings. But can work itself be glorifying to God? Can I create a spreadsheet? Can I drive a nail in a manner that brings God glory? And this includes, and I want to say this in the beginning, this includes full-time moms. I believe that's the hardest job out there. Not, I, I don't, not from experience, I don't know that. But I'm, I was a kid, so I know what I put her through. Um, and this also includes students who are preparing for jobs. Those of us in this room that are in high school or in college, junior high, elementary, you know, the, this, this applies to all of us. We're all going to work, and we're going to work a lot. So let's look at this, and, and, and we're going to ask the question <clears throat> that, that Solomon asked. He said, what's the point? What's the point? We labor under the sun, I toil, I die, I turn to dust, and someone else who didn't do anything to earn it gets everything that I worked for. So what's the point? What's the point of work? And, and is there a point? Well, we're going to look at this, working to the glory of God. We're going to look at it from, from God's perspective. What's his plan for work in our lives? Number two, man's problem. As usual, we messed things up. And then how does Jesus provide a way to restore us unto God's original plan and purpose for the work that he set out for us to do in the first place? So number one, God's plan. We need to understand that God delights in work. God delights more specifically in, in his work. The psalmist sang at the top of his lungs, may the Lord rejoice in his works. Or the New Living says it, the Lord rejoices in all that he has made. The Lord enjoys and delights in the process of working and in the finished product that he has made. We said that when God made creation, he stepped back and go, man, that is awesome. God takes delight in work. And not only that, David Platt said it this way. He said, God works for us. You understand that the only reason that you can take that breath that you're breathing right now is because God works for us. It's God's work, it's his activity that allows us to exist. If God stopped working, so would we. We would just break down. God holds it together. Not only, though, does he work for us, God also works through us. 
that one of the primary ways God works in this world is through other people. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, you consider, you know, the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. He asked the question, well, how does the Lord do that? How does he, when we pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, how does he provide it? Well, he says he, he provides it primarily through the farmer. The, the farmer that, that cultivates the soil and that, that harvests that wheat. And then he provides that daily bread through the baker who makes that bread. Now, some of you, that joke will be lost on you. You're probably better off for it. Um, it's the baker that takes that wheat and, and makes it into bread. And then he uses the meal provider. The one who goes to the supermarket, purchases the bread, brings it home, puts it on the kitchen counter, slices it up into pieces, makes a tuna fish sandwich, slices it horizontally, obviously, and leave the crust on, you babies. So he takes this, this bread, he gives us our daily bread. Now, did, did God have to use the baker and the farmer and the meal preparer? He could have thrown that horizontally sliced tuna fish sandwich from the sky. He could have given it directly to me, manna style. But he, he chose to work through other people to provide that daily bread for me. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, God milks the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. God has chosen to meet our needs oftentimes through other people. That's the way he's operated the, the preaching of the gospel. That he uses the church to go and proclaim his name to the nations. He could have done it, and he would have done a lot better job without us. But he chooses to work not just for us, but through us. We rewind back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. This is how it all started. God planned for, made man to work. We were created to work. Look at what he says. He says, God said... Let us make people in our image to be like ourselves. Let the, let, they will be masters over all life. The fish in the sea, the birds, the livestock, the animals. He said, God, build them, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Masters over the fish and birds. Look, I have given you the sea throughout the earth and all the for your food. So God gives Adam, he gives him all of the plants and all of the animals. He says, you're in charge of it. This is your deal. I'm, I'm putting you to work in charge of this. And more specifically in chapter 2, he says, God made man to work. He, he says, the Lord placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and care for it. Right from the beginning, he gives Adam and Eve a job. He says, I want you to be gardeners. Take care of the garden of Eden. God creates man in his image, and just in the same way that God creates and cultivates, he put man in the garden to create and cultivate, just like he does. He said, go to work. Now, despite popular opinion, work is not actually a part of the fall. Okay, some of you may be thinking, I don't know. But it's not. It was part of God's design and creation. In fact, that's what he modeled for us when he created. Six days of work and one day of rest. And I'll tell you, the Bible says, when we get to heaven, that we're going to work some more. You say, 80,000 hours is not enough, God? I have to work for eternity? Because see, God doesn't view work like we often view work. Work is a gift. We were designed to be workers and to delight in what we do. For our good, he gave us work. For his glory, he gave us work. And we glorify God simply by working. 
Again, not by, you know, witnessing to your coworker at work, but simply by doing the work itself. And I love this definition of work from a man named Tim Keller. He said it this way. He said, work is taking the raw material of creation and developing it for the sake of others. Work is taking the raw material of creation and using it for the sake of others. So he fleshes it out like this. He says, think about different vocations and the way that this applies. He says, the musician. The musician takes the raw materials of sound and brings the meaning of art into our lives. He says, the farmer takes the raw material of soil and seed and brings food into our lives. The economist takes the raw material of of human interaction and helps us to function better as a society. And the philosopher takes the raw material of the human mind and helps us to understand truth and beauty. You can apply this to whatever job you're in in your life. That God, and just like he did in creation, he has us take the raw materials of this world that he created, and we create it and we cultivate it for the benefit of those around us. He says, this means that we are God's ministers in our work, not only when we are witnessing or talking about Jesus, but when we are simply doing our work. A musician is serving God when she makes great music, not only when she's singing about coming to Jesus. When we work, we echo the heart and work of our Father, and that glorifies Him. So God planned for man to work, but then, as usual, we come along and we mess things up. Our problem when it comes to work. Genesis 3. Now notice, Genesis 1 and 2, he designed us to work. It's not until Genesis chapter 3 that the sin comes into the world. He said, and, and God said to Adam, because you listened to your wife, no, that's not the sin, um, and ate the fruit I told you not to eat, I have placed a curse on the ground, and all your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles. Though you will eat of its and all your life you will sweat to produce food until your dying day. Then you will return to the ground from which you came, for you were made from dust, and to the dust you will return. So the consequence of the fall was not that Adam would have to work, but that work would become hard, that work would not be fulfilling, that work would be frustrating. In other words, work became work. That he had to now, he had to combat thorns and thistles, and the, and the ground would fight back and forth with him as he tried to, to cultivate the seeds from it, and that he would be sweating, that it would be hard work, hard labor. And we can all attest to work being frustrating, right? When all of us, I had one of, the, one of my jobs this last week, it was one of the most frustrating weeks that I've had in a long, long time. Work is hard. Work is frustrating. And that's one of the consequences of the fall. So let's look at three different areas um, where we, as fallen, sinful workers, um, may need to adjust our perspective when it comes to work. Number one, understanding the difference between relativity and reality. We live in a culture that screams relativity, that tells us, hey man, whatever works for you is cool. You do whatever you need to do, and whatever, whatever makes you feel good is good right? That's kind of our societal values these days. You know what I want to do when someone says that? I want to punch them in the face. (laughs) Not because I'm angry at them, but to test their theory, okay? (laughs) I punch them in the face. How do you think they're going to react when I punch them? What'd you do that? It felt good for me. (laughs) 
That worked for, did it not work for you? I'm sorry, we must just see things differently. But this carries over into work. You see, we, our culture tells you, hey, work wherever you want. Work however hard you want. Do whatever fulfills you. And again, in the words of the Reverend Larry, horse feathers, right? That is complete horse feathers. Not a biblical view on work. There is a standard. There is a reality. There is a difference as to whether or not our work is good. And we don't get to be that standard. We don't get to make that call. The standard is God. Is our work pleasing to Him? Does He call it good? So what does the Bible say? What does God say in His Word is good work? Well, two things that he calls us to. Number one, good work is work that is done wholeheartedly unto the Lord. Look in Colossians chapter 3. It says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. That paycheck, your boss, that is not the end. Our job, our work is ultimately done unto the Lord. And one day we're going to stand before him. And what matters is if the Lord says, well done, my good and faithful servant. He is our master. And you might say, well, Justin, you don't understand. You don't know my boss. You don't know what I've been through, right? You don't know what my workplace is like and how hard it is. Do you want to know what the context is here in Colossians? Paul is addressing slaves. Paul is talking to slaves and telling them, Slave, you're not working for your master on earth. You're working for your heavenly master. So if anybody in here is owned by another individual, has forced labor, then then you can complain. Otherwise, I doubt that our situation is as bad as the people that Paul was addressing here. That's That's not to make light of what you're going through in your life. That's to say... Think about what he's addressing, who he's telling here to do this. So, so how do we do this? How do we, how, do we, how do we work wholeheartedly? The New Living Translation says that you ought to work hard and diligently. To work unto the Lord with all your heart is to be the most diligent worker that you can be. To be the most skillful worker you can be in your line of work to the glory of God. Not to get a pat on the back and to raise above the rest of your co-workers, but because what I'm doing is to please my Father. And whether it's shoveling dirt, cutting hair, answering a phone, going to school, or burping a baby, we do it excellently. You be the best baby burper on the block. There's no better baby burper than you. Do it with 100% of your heart as unto the Lord. Secondly, we work wholeheartedly for others. God, you know, in John, he says... John says, you cannot love God without loving your brother. If you claim to love God and hate your brother, you're a liar. That it goes hand in hand, and I believe the same thing can be applied to work. We cannot work as unto the Lord if we're not working unto our brother and our sister. And I believe that this is at the heart of why so many of us can be miserable at our jobs. And Dorothy Sayers, she's a lady that wrote on this topic, and I really love the way her perspective on this. She said this, she said, the habit of thinking of work 
as something one does to get money and position is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what would happen if we began to think about work otherwise. So we think of work in terms of our paycheck and climbing the the corporate ladder of success. And she says that is often where we stop with it. She goes on to say, people become doctors these days, not primarily to relieve suffering, but to bring their family up in the world. People become lawyers, not necessarily because they have a passion for justice, but to bring their family up in the world. What she's saying is that we don't see the way that our vocation benefits the community around us. That it helps the people in Kenai and Soldatna through the vocation that that we're doing. And then she goes on to say this. She says, during World War II, one of the greatest surprises we had in our lives is that we found ourselves for the very first time happy. Why? Because for the first time in our lives, we found ourselves doing something not for the pay and not for the social standing, but for the sake of working together to get something done that benefited. Now, we were not given our skills and creativity from God just to pay the bills and provide for our family. Is that a legitimate reason to work? Yes. That is absolutely. You have been called to provide for your family. But if we don't see the way that our job benefits the community people around us, we miss one of the primary purposes God has given us our gifts. We are always doing things as unto others. And that includes our vocation. Imagine how radically your perspective on work could change if you were thinking about the good of others in everything that you did. When I answer that phone call, I want to I return that phone call. I want to return it as promptly as possible so that person has the best possible. That when I, you know, when I drive that nail into that piece of wood, that I want to, whatever I'm making, I want to make it excellent so that person is receiving that, that gift or that good, that, that product, and it's the best product that they could have for their benefit. And when I teach that child, I want to teach them the best that I can to give them the best opportunity to be a learner in this world and to understand the truth and beauty of God's creation. Number two. To understand the, the false dichotomy or division of the spiritual and the secular. This is a picture here, and it's kind of whitewashed, you can't see it very well. Uh, this is of 2000, year 2000. Our youth group here from the church went to Brother. Oh, thank you, Lord. Um, we went to Brother National Conference in Pennsylvania. This is me up in the top, that tan smile. Um, and actually, a couple other people. You see John over there on the right with the mustache? <laughs> that is delicious. I don't know <laughs> why he ever got rid of that thing. I think, there's other, I think my sister's up there, my mom. I think Jacob's there. You can do some Where's Waldo on your own. Um, but in 2000, I decided, it was actually 1999, our church, I went with our youth group to Brother National Youth Conference of kids, and God used it in my life in incredible ways, and I got, I just became on fire for, okay, next year, I go on a missions trip with that same group, and for six weeks, I'm on this missions trip, and at the end of it, we go to another conference, and then the third summer, I go on another missions trip, and another conference, and then there's a speaker that's at this conference, and by this time, I am just like, I'm ready to go, I'm ready to go conquer this world in the name of Jesus, and this, and this pre, this speaker, he says, I want 
going to come forward when I yell, one, on, the, on the count of three, you're going to come down and you're going to walk down this aisle and there's a piece of paper here waiting and you're going to sign it to say that I am going into full-time vocational ministry to live for God. And I said, yeah! So he makes the call and we're running down the aisles like Price is Right style, you know, and I'm like, here we go. And I get the paper and I sign it and my youth pastor signs it because then that makes it, you know, bedrock. And, 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 I, and I decide I'm going to spend the rest of my life Serving God in the best way possible. Full-time vocational ministry. So I started to head in that direction. And I go to college to become a missionary. I started heading down that road. Well now, forward to today, I'm getting a teaching degree to be an elementary student, uh, teacher in Soldatna. So, my question to you is, did I have a high spiritual calling and then replace that for a lower secular calling? Is, is working in a, non, in a non-full-time Christian vocational ministry lesser, is that less pleasing and glorifying to God than a secular vocation? Well, let me ask you this question. When Jesus came to this earth, what was his job? Was he a rabbi? Was he a priest? Was he a youth pastor at the local synagogue? Jesus was a carpenter. He spent three years in, in ministry. Up until he was 30, he was making chairs and tables with his dad. Was the son of God, did he, did he waste those years on carpentry when he, could have been, when he could have been doing full-time Christian ministry? No, he was providing goods and services for his brothers and sisters. And you see, we, we get this idea that, that there's a difference between the spiritual and secular when it comes to vocation. Think about this. If we were all pastors, we were all missionaries, we all went into that full-time work, our society wouldn't be able to function, right? If we, think about that with any vocation. If we all decided to be cops, okay, it'd be a, be a safe place, <laughs> but we'd all be starving because nobody would be there to make food, Right? We were all lawyers. Bad example. <laughs> no, we love, we have lawyers in our church. God loves them too. Um, but if everybody quit their job and went into full-time Christian ministry, this world, it would just, it would shut down. See, the, the, it has been said the difference between wilderness and culture is work. And, and so we need vocations of all kinds, but not only do we need those vocations, but the work in of itself is glorifying to God. William Tyndale said it very well. He said, if we look at the difference between washing dishes and preaching the gospel, on the outside, it can look very different. That we would see one is just this menial task, and one is this really high calling. But if we look at it as touching to please God, there's no difference at all. When done to the honor of the Lord, washing the dishes and preaching the gospel are the exact same. So whatever you do. Now, sometimes God does call individuals to specific situations, whether it be a full-time Christian job or not. We have in our church 
We have the Dixons and the Lloyds and the Earharts and the Smithwicks. Many people who have in the past, and the Kidders have been there, many people who have had their primary source of income be through a, a, a strictly Christian, Christian organization. And there are times when we would be running from God, disobeying God, if we try, there was a time in my life where I know that my conscience would have been violated, that I would have been disobeying the Holy Spirit's calling if I had run from being a missionary. But then God took me to a different place. But more often than not, what Paul says in Thessalonians chapter 4, says this, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This was in the context, he starts off chapter 4 saying, this is how we are called, brothers and sisters, to live in a manner that pleases the Lord. What does he say? Does he say you have to move to Africa and work in orphanages? No, he says, right where you are, you lead a quiet life. You work with your hands, so you're not dependent on other people. And what's going to happen? You're going to work, win the respective outsiders, that they may see your good works and glorify the Lord. I don't believe in the title full-time ministry. That's why I keep putting air quotes around it. I do believe in being a full-time Christian. I don't believe there's Christian carpentry, but I believe there are Christian carpenters. I don't believe there's a Christian oil field. <laughs> you guys are like, eh, probably right on that. But I do believe in Christian oil field workers. We are the believers that are called to go into every vocation that is out there and to be the best that we can and to use it as a it's a situation to glorify God. Third one, idolatry versus idleness. These are two pitfalls that we can, that some of us tend to fall on the one and some of us tend to fall on the other. Idolatry, if this is where you tend to go with work, you can ask yourself this question. Do I look for, my, do, in my job, do I look for identity? Look for identity in my job. I go up to somebody, hi, I'm Justin, I'm a banker. And, and, and that you're the first thing, that you, how you define yourself, what validates you, is your job. Do you look to that for your job? That the meaning and purpose, the only thing that, that justifies your existence on this planet is your job and that you do it well. And you, and you look to that to give that to you. Devotion. Do you devote yourself to your job more than you devote yourself to your family and to your church and to your God? And we can do that with any job. We can do that with preaching. And what we do is we take that little garden that God gave us, to the, the raw materials that he gave us to create and cultivate for the benefit of others, and we turn that little garden into God in itself. And we make the work the end. He said that good gifts make lousy gods. God has given each of us in this room some incredible gifts and talents and, and situations to place us into to impact this world. But if we look to that job to become a God, it will disappoint us. Some of us then fall on the, on the other side of the spectrum where we wrestle with idleness. And Solomon had some pretty harsh words for the lazy one in Proverbs 6. He said, go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no command." 
winter, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at, at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a bandit, and scarcity like an armed man. Some pretty harsh words for the lazy. And I just want to pause for a second and say who this does and does not apply to. There may be some in this room who have recently lost their jobs, or there may be a disability or something that's keeping you from being able to work. Um, you may be trying very hard to find a job. Uh, you may be working three jobs and still finding it difficult to make ends meet. And I don't want you to feel beat down. And this is not, that is not laziness. Laziness, we know what laziness is. When you have opportunity and you do not take it. Holy Spirit, we hear to you when you're being idle in your work. And for some of us, this does mean not working. For, for more of us, this means that you're putting in the, the hours, but you're not working. This means when you go to work, that you're not being diligent with that time that you've been given. And this means that you may work, but you don't care about the work you're doing. That you just see it as a means to an end. We're just collecting checks so I can get what I want. And what happens when we approach work like that? We begin to complain. We are dissatisfied with our work. And we become very, very miserable. If we don't see it as unto the Lord and for the benefit of others, it will, it will lead to dissatisfaction. So finally, what does Jesus do? The entrance, enter stage right, the person of Jesus. How does Jesus take and redeem these, these false ways, that, these, these improper ways we've approached work and he redeemed them so that we can glorify God in the way that he originally created us to do this. Three ways that we look at here. Number one, Christ's work has secured our salvation and this frees us to rest in his work. Think about it this way. If our religious works pleased God, in other words, the, the religious things that we did, if those pleased God, then yeah, we should all try to become pastors or missionaries or priests or whatever it was that gained the most favor from God. But if we are saved through faith alone, then no amount of religious work is going to increase our status in God's eyes. And Christ's work is the only superior work is the only acceptable work. And does that not level the playing field? None of us can gain, gain favor in the Father's eyes through what we do. And in fact, the scripture says that all of us as believers have been called a royal priesthood. We are all priests. The garbage man, the banker, the babysitter, and the pastor. We have all been called priests. Number two, Christ's work has secured our satisfaction, freeing us from the idolatry of work. That I don't need work to satisfy me because Jesus is my all in all. I don't need work to give me my meaning or my joy or my purpose because Jesus is my meaning and my joy and my purpose. He frees us from that. Gilbert and Traeger said it this way. They said, Christ's work provides an anchor for your soul. And see if you can identify with some of these things that we look to work from. It says, without it, it's inevitable that you'll be blown around like a leaf by the winds of stock market gyrations, temporary successes and failures, performance reports, bosses who do or don't treat you well, and your own desires, whether they are met or not. But Christ saves you to free you from that kind of life. 
and the ebbs and flows and the ups and downs of work can't touch you if you're not looking to those things to give you your satisfaction. If we rest in the person of Christ alone, then that work, we are freed to work for the sake of others and for the glory of God. Finally, Christ's work has secured our significance, freeing us from the idleness of work. You see, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon said that work is pointless in this world if this world is all that there is to this life. But there is more to reality than what is under the sun. That God loves you. And that he has designed you specifically with your exact set of skills and abilities and creativity and opportunities. And God has prepared Paul says, good works in advance for us to walk in. And he's given us amazing opportunities that he's already planned and that we're going to walk in those. And Christ made a way back to God to experience the purpose and significance in our lives. That we have value, that we have purpose, we have significance in Christ. And that frees us from seeing the pointlessness of work and becoming lazy. I want to close with these thoughts and we'll be done. Uh, you kind of say, so now what? How do I go back to work Monday morning, you know, tomorrow, and, and, I, and I re-engage in work in, in, in the way that God would have me engage with work? And John Piper gave nine ways in an article he wrote, nine ways that we can glorify God in work. And just some, just some food for thought as you take, as you go back to your workplace this week. Um, number one, that we glorify God at work through dependence on him. You know, we, we can do nothing without God. I recently read a quote by C.S. Lewis. I loved it. He said, Relying on God has to begin all over again every day as if nothing had yet been done. In other words, relying on God doesn't carry over to the next day. That every single morning we wake up and say, God, I can't do it without you. And I've got to lean fully on the person of your son in my life. That's a daily, daily thing that we do. Number two, we glorify him through integrity at work. We're punctual, that we're responsible, that we don't lie or cheat or steal. And most of the way, I mean, most of us aren't thumbing through the petty cash. Most of the way that we steal is by slacking off at work. And we steal from, from those who are paying us. Number three, our skill, that we use our skills in the most excellent way possible. The things that we do well, we do them well. The things that we don't do well, we improve on. Number four, corporate shaping. What we mean by this, what, it, what John meant by this was, Aligning your company's ethics with God's ethics. And are there, are there opportunities that God's giving you at your work and you see the way your company is and you say, you know what, we could do that better. We could do that more toward the way that God designed us to function as people and for us to work in that manner. And God may be giving you inroads to do that at your work. Drive impact. We are called to love our community to take care of the orphan and the widow and those who are in need around us. And a lot of times, through your work, through your company, your organization, there are some amazing opportunities to be able to do that. We've seen many of those done in, here in the church. Might you be able to spur your company on to impacting community through giving time and resources? Number six, communication. We said that, that, that witnessing to other believers is, is not the only way that we glorify God in work, but it is certainly one of them. And God has given you relationships at your work. You might be the only Christian that your coworker or client or boss ever will know. You have an opportunity to speak the truth to them, to speak gospel to them, and pray for those opportunities and then boldness 
when those opportunities arise. Number seven, love. We as believers always need to be putting others before ourselves. Be the first one at work to serve, to volunteer. I'll go make the coffee run. I'll stay. I'll do that job that nobody else wants to do. And be the first to listen to your coworkers, to hear them, and to be there for them. Number eight, money. We do not work to have, we work to earn, to have, to give. Freely I've received, now freely to give. God doesn't give us money just to stockpile and use it for what we want. We've been called to give to our family and give to those around us. We are stewards of that money. It does not belong to us. Thinking about that and the way we use it. Number nine, finally, thanks. That we approach work with gratitude. That we are thankful that God has given us a job. That he has given us the ability to carry out that job. That he's given us the relationships of that work. And if we approach work in a humble way, we will not grumble. If you're humble, you won't grumble. Recognizing we don't deserve any of this. That God has given us all good gifts by his grace, not from our merit. And to approach work with that humility and not in dissent and complaint. So let us whistle while we work. As we go to our jobs this week, to know that God has designed us to work. He's given us 80,000 hours of opportunity to glorify him in the way that we work diligently and excellently, in the way that we work for other people. And in that work, we can glorify the God who works for us and through us and for Jesus who worked for us by taking our place on the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you created us and you gave us something to do. We're not just sitting around waiting for you to come back. You created this society, and this society has been called the function in a manner that requires work. You designed us to work. And Father, sometimes work is frustrating, and it's hard, and it becomes the drudgery of the daily, like it's Monday morning already. And Father, so many times we can take that attitude to work. Father, may you transform our minds in the way that we think about our job, that we look at it as an opportunity to serve other people, to serve our community, to provide for our families, to be a witness to you, to work diligently unto you, that so we might hear those words, good and faithful servant, well done. Father, may we depend on you for that energy, for that love. That can't come from us. Father, without you, we are miserable human beings we will never find satisfaction in anything, including our vocation. May we find our meaning and our significance and our purpose in your son and what he's done for us and who he is in us. And as we rest in that, we will be freed to see work as an opportunity to serve others and to glorify you. Take our hands, take our minds, take our time, take our jobs, use them for your glory. Thank you, Father. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.